Good morning. Happy New Year's Eve morning. Is that a saying? Um, we're going to go with that. Hey, while you are um, there, if you would grab the blue Bible in front of you, looks like that. And if you turn to page 496, it's actually not the text that is printed in the order of service. And so Steve called me Friday night. And the better part of wisdom may have been to pull one out of the file and dust it off. But I have confidence in the word. So you get a half-baked sermon that's been stewing for 24 hours this morning. But I have confidence in the word of God. I've actually been stuff I've been kicking around for a while. We're going to look at Psalm 90 uh, this morning. And we're really going to spend the bulk of our time actually turning around one verse in it, verse 12. It's, it's been a thing that's been kicking around in my head for the last year and a half, um, this psalm. I just, I've been working through them. I hit it. This one's kind of stuck with me, and I just keep, uh, I keep coming back to it. Let me set it up. Moses is actually the author of this psalm, and what's happened is, is Moses is penning this psalm, it's believed, Right after he has led the people out of Egypt and they've rebelled and God pronounces that the people will die in the desert. So there is this scarcity that the people of God are facing and they grumble against him and God lays the curse upon them saying to the people in the land, right, that the men will not actually enter the promised land, but they'll die where they are because of their grumbling. So they face this scarcity, both the scarcity of kind of want, but also the scarcity of their trust in God. And Moses prays for something. Moses prays for bounty. And so what I want us to look at this morning just briefly is this idea of scarcity, but the main idea of this idea of satisfaction and bounty that the people of God hope for. So this is the Lord's good, kind word to you and me this morning. It, it's, the, it's the bread of life. It's the word of life. It's the thing that God gives to you and I because he actually delights to feed us with his love. So let's hear it. It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity or mercy on your servants. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word in our time. Lord Jesus, in our scarcity, would you fill us with your steadfast love? Because we, your people, need it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Dr. Brene Brown is a sociologist. She's a... um, She's a qualitative researcher at the University of Houston, and her emphasis of study is shame and vulnerability. That's that's her research. She has done a lot of research in the United States in the last 15 years, and she describes the culture in which we live as actually a culture of scarcity. That's the way she describes who we are as a culture and a people. It's not the nicest way to describe us. But what she means by this is we are a folks who are marked by shame, by comparison, and by this technical word disengagement. Shame, comparison, and disengagement. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the first half of this psalm, which I'm going to summarize in like a minute, is this. The first 12 verses of Psalm 90 are the stuff that we as the body of Christians kind of do every week in our worship. It's what we rehearse. It's this strange notion of confessing the world as the way it really is as God describes it. So the first six verses of Psalm 90 talk about this. Just the the ethereal, quick nature of human beings. They're here and they're gone. And God says, return to dust. They live and they die. Verse 6. They're like flowers. They they, they grow up in the morning and they're gone by the afternoon. And then 7 through 12 talks about this nature of the reason that that is. And Moses is actually reflecting on Genesis 1 through 3 as he writes this as well. The reason that that is is because of the fact that the way the world really works is that man is under a curse. Because of their rebellion and their sin. And look, this is a strange thing. I want to put it to you this way. That the settled idea of confession among Christians is actually pretty interesting. It is this place where we say out loud the reality of the world in the way it is, right? That our world is marked by scarcity, by shame, and by guilt, and by grief, and by loss, and by death. And by this weird thing, now this is, this is the deal. Brene Brown says that what the world is actually trying to do with their scarcity, with their shame, and with their comparison, and with their disengagement, their alienation from one another, is that they try to normalize those things. Right? What we do with it, and that makes sense, we've got to do something with this guilt, and with this shame, and with this separation, and with this loss. And so one of the ways in which kind of folks try to do that is we normalize it. We kind of talk about how good, it, how good our imperfections are, how normal they are. But there is a unique thing that Christians do, and that is this. Not because we're better, it's just because we're trying to operate under the framework of the way God describes the world. 
we say this strange thing, and it, it rings in our, our membership vow. When we say this week after week, do you believe in this, this archaic spiritual language that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? That's a weird confession. What Moses is saying is, what we say as a body every week, Lord, we face and we experience and we feel this scarcity, this shame, this guilt, this loss, this alienation. And we recognize that the scarcity that we experience, this brokenness that we have, this rebellion that we have, and that the life that it affects because of that, death, And sorrow and grief comes from your hand. That is this weird thing that Christians rehearse every week. It's a good rehearsal. Well, in the face of that scarcity, what is it that we want? So, like, why do we confess that stuff? What is it that the people of God want? What is it that Moses wants? And what I want us to do in just a few minutes is I want us to ruminate on this stuff in verse 12. Moses prays for a lot of things, but in verse 12, 14, sorry, in 14, Moses prays this, that in the face of scarcity and loss and brokenness and guilt, this is what Moses prays for the people of God. This is what he wants. And by the way, this is what God wants. That we would be satisfied in the middle of scarcity and loss and guilt. That we would be satisfied and filled with the steadfast love of God. What is it that we want this morning? Everybody wants to make New Year's resolutions. You know what my New Year's resolution is? I want a New Year's resolution from God. I want God to resolve that He would fill His people with the steadfast love that comes to us in Christ. Why? Because that is what will make us to rejoice and be glad and be filled in the face of the real scarcity and guilt and shame we feel. Moses prays God, this is our desire. What is our desire this morning as the people of God? Lord, would you fill us? Would you satisfy us? In the morning, would you make us filled with the steadfast love? Okay, what is it to be satisfied? The way the Bible uses this word of satisfied is this idea of satiated and filled and contented. It is a wholeheartedness, right? Now look, it's the difference between, right? It's splitting the difference between uh, what children think of as enough of donuts and what parents think of enough as donuts for breakfast, right? A parent's view of what's enough for donuts is one, because we're all concerned about the sugar intake of our children. That's scarcity, right? We want to minimize the donuts they can take in. Children, they want gluttony. They want to eat until they're going to, you know, be sick, okay? 
And somewhere in the middle is this biblical idea of being satiated, of being full, of being content, of being happy, of being blessed and really filled with goodness. Okay, now I'm going to step out on a ledge here for a moment. And in the cultural moment where the language of sex is seen as either dirty or oppressive or what have you. Why do you think the Bible uses the same language that Moses uses in verse 14? In the Song of Songs, in the Song of Solomon. What the Song of Songs is actually talking about is sexual intimacy, not activity, right? Not self-gratification. That the language that the Song of Songs uses, that the idea of consummation, wink, wink, okay? That the idea of sexual intimacy, that that idea of that they want a husband and a wife to be satisfied with the fruits of the goodness of intimacy is the same word that Moses uses here. Would you satisfy us, O God? Would you fill us? Would you make us content and full and pleased and, and, and happy with? God wants us to be filled, satisfied. My favorite, and you may have heard me say this before, my favorite place on earth to eat is this resort in the Caribbean called Little Dick's Bay. And the Rockefellers built it in the 60s for people who have more money than I have, and yet I've been able to go there. And they have a brunch, a breakfast brunch. And you walk out over this pavilion this thatched pavilion that is gorgeous. And you look out upon the Caribbean Sea and there are these tables of food. There is this omelet station. And this dude's been cooking omelets for 30 years there. And he's the best omelet I've ever... It's everything you could think of to go in an omelet. Eggs and bacon and mushroom and ham and ah, candy cane if you want. Like you want it, it's in there. And like a fruit station, smoothies with every kind of fruit you can think of. And then like cheese and lox and toasted crunch and lucky charms and everything you can, every good thing. And it's this gorgeous spread. And the idea in the Bible is that what God wants for you and me in our moment of scarcity is to satisfy us with goodness. To bring us to the banquet table of his kindness and his love and fill us there. We want to be satisfied. Moses prays, God, in this moment of scarcity, would you fill us? Would you satiate us? Would you satisfy us? With what? Fill us with what? Lord, in the morning, would you satisfy us with what? What will satisfy you? Moses is as honest. He says, Lord, would you fill us with the steadfast love of God? With your steadfast love. Now, I'm going to return to Brene Brown, Dr. Brown, for a moment. As a qualitative researcher in the moment of scarcity, she has come to recognize that the greatest human need... Shocking. 
The greatest human experience that is needed in their moment of scarcity is, wait for it, is love. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Now, the way she describes love is actually pretty amazing. She describes that being loved is a place of belonging and a place where you're delighted in. Belonging and delighted. She's sitting in a room of 3,000 social scientists. And this is what she says. How many of you in your research talk about love? This is a room of 3,000 researchers. She said two hands went up. Two out of 3,000. Why? Because as a scientist, you can't measure it or define it very well, so it's not cool to talk about it, and it certainly won't get you published. Two hands out of 3,000 go up. Then she asks another follow-on question. How many of you think that love is one of the most important things you experience as a person? The entire room raised their hand. 3,000. And then she's smart enough to ask one more question. She says, how many of you, if you could be famous because of your current level of research, the way it's worded, would give up ever having that sense of being belonging and delighted in again? Not a hand goes up. Why? Because what we deeply desire in our scarcity and our loss is to belong and to be delighted in. And in the midst of our scarcity, that is what God in all his goodness satisfies us with. The covenant God who this morning speaks the word of love over you that says, I belong to you and you belong to me. And it's not in a begrudging sense. That what God desires to do for you and I as the church of Jesus this morning is to satisfy your soul at the banquet table of the fullness of his glorious, belonging, delighting love in Jesus. What do we want? We want to be satisfied with the deep abiding love that Christ steadily repeats, that we belong to him. That he loves us and that he delights in us and that his love is full and overflowing and it's a banquet table of feast. It is the idea that what we want this morning and what God promises experientially for you and I is that we would sit down morning by morning and be fed by the love of God to us in Christ. That you would be nourished by his forgiveness. That you would be nourished by the spirit of comfort. That you would be nourished and strengthened by the fact that even in your scarcity, even in your sin, even in the things that he talks about, God says to you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And it's not just that I won't leave you or forsake you. Sometimes our view of God is that we belong to him, but he just sticks up with us. He just puts up with us. He just kind of begrudgingly abides with us. That is the lie. Why does God in the Old Testament speak in the language of banquet? His love is the banquet table overflowing with wine and goodness. It's the picture of the feeding of the 5,000. God desires to satisfy you in this way, that the people sat down on the grass and they ate of the bread and the fish till they were what? 
till they were satisfied, till they were full. And you know what? There was leftover. Why? Because that is the kind of love that God gives and pours out to us in Christ. It is the fullness of his love that satisfies. What do we want? We want to belong. And we want to be delighted in. And in the gospel of God's love and grace this morning, we feast on that goodness. Forgiveness, faithfulness, the beauty of our adoptions as sons and daughters, the delight that God has in us, the hope of the comfort, His patience, the promise that God's love extends to actually right go into the deepness of our brokenness and heal us. The hope that the the weariness that we feel and the loss that we have is not something that we will experience forever, but that God's grace extends not just to the now, but to the hereafter. That though we face death and sorrow, God's mercy and goodness will bring us past it. He loves his people. He delights in his people. There is nothing that will satisfy like the love of God. Nothing, and it does. What do we want? It's that protest thing, right? Like, what do we want? I don't know. When do we want it? We want it now. What do we have in the gospel of God's grace? Would God satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast? I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. That never giving up, never stopping, unbreakable Always pursuing, never quitting, follow you till the end of your days in your scarcity kind of love. What do we want? What does God provide? And I love the fact that there is power in the formative habit. If you contrast verse 6 with verse 14, it is so beautifully pregnant and good. Verse 6 it talks about the frailty of man and his scarcity. That in the morning of his life, he, he comes up like a flower. And by the evening, you are a mist that no one remembers. But verse 14 has a more permanence to it. God, in the morning of your dawning of goodness, which comes up morning after morning after morning, there's a formative habit to being fed by the steadfast love of God that we desire and that we have. James K. Smith is this book called You Are What You Love. It talks about the formation of liturgy, the formative power of the repetitive nature of the things that people do, the liturgy and cycles of their life. The power of God feeding you every morning is that he will actually satisfy your soul with something substantial and good, the banquet of his grace in Jesus. My kids and I are on a Blue Bloods binge. We just... We've been piling up over this break and watching it. And Tom Selleck is getting old and like me, round in the middle. Makes me feel better about life. Okay. But they have this great thing. It's this family and he's the commissioner of the New York City Police Department. And they do this family tradition on Sundays. They, they, they meet in their home, this sweet old red brick home and... New York and they have this family dinner and it's this thing every week. It's three generations of people gather around this table. And uh, it's, it's funny because the show is kind of poking fun at the rote nature of religion in some ways. But there is something drawing about the way every Sunday meal in the show, they do this. 
They fold their hands and they say this prayer, Lord, we thank you for this bounty which we're about to receive and this rote prayer. But there is something about the habit that draws you in. There is something formative about the mysterious nature of the way worship brings you and I to this daily feast, this weekly feast. What do you want? You want Jesus to satisfy your longings. And God says, feast upon me, my grace, my goodness, my love, my kindness. It will reach into your scarcity and fill you up. And the funny thing, and I'm going to land the plane because I told Steve I would. It's not just individual. It's not just Jesus, give me my personal pill of satisfaction in the pot of my personal relationship with Jesus moment. Me, myself, and I relating to God by myself. Now look, I'm not disdaining the personal apprehension of the fullness of the love of God at all. It is personal. But the way it's phrased is, Lord, would you fill us? Would you fill us? What God wants is God wants you and me to be filled. He wants you and me. He wants Ward Burger and Kate Burger and Paige Burger and Louisanne Burger and Anderson Burger to be filled by the Spirit of God. And He wants them to see, right, the Welches and the Fredericks and the Jordans and the Cochrams and I, I don't know every name. He wants you to look around and see each other being filled with the steadfast love of God. There is something convincing about looking and seeing the fact that it's not just for you and me. It's for us. What do we want? What do we want? Would you fill us with the steadfast love of God? Look, there's this great scene in Braveheart. I know it's an old film. I don't know how many of you have seen it. But like all the great war scenes when they're about to go to battle, uh, Mel Gibson is on his horse with that crazy painted face, right? And he's like riding up and down, giving his big speech, rah, 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 motivation, motivation, rah, for whatever he says, That's right? But there's that moment in the scene where they step off into battle, right? They step off the line. They start charging forward. And it's this quick frame catch. And in one frame, there is this picture of this one man, and it's right on him. And you see the somber reality of his face saying, okay, I'm going. I'm stepping forward. And then the next frame is you look, and you see him look down the frame to his friend, his lifetime friend. And they see each other saying, we are going forward in this together. And the picture of the gospel of God's grace is that he desires to fill us with the meat of his steadfast love. We're about to do something. We're about to take the supper. Sometimes I wish that we would serve the Lord's Supper and we would give out chunks of bread and cups of wine. Like, I wish you just have a big hunk of it and a big cup. Now, what's behind that? Because what we want is, is we want satisfaction. We want the fullness. Now, but, but why do we not? Because what we're trying to say is this. There is something about the mysterious thing we do. 
of feeding on Jesus by faith. That if we just get a taste of it, it will fill us. But that's different from this. Guys, there are some of you here this morning who this is your thought. What God wants me to do is just be satisfied with the little he gives me and get on with it. No, no, no. God wants to feed you with his grace in Jesus. To satisfy your soul with the steadfast love of Christ. It is the meat of your life. It is the satisfying drink. It's why Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy. I'll give you rest. It's why he says, if you come to me and you're hungry, I'll feed your soul. It's why he says, come to me, you who thirst, and you will never thirst again. Because I will give you the thing that the scarcity of your soul longs for. I will give you myself. And you will belong and you will be delighted in. And that will satisfy your soul. Beloved, come to the table and feed on the banquet that is the goodness of the grace of God to you in Jesus. Amen.